would uh, make electricity and every fuel that we need to, to power our homes and our businesses unaffordable, and we're, we, we just can't have that. We can work together on emissions reduction, but he can't continue with this heavy-handed targeting of Alberta. We just won't stand for it. Okay, that was, uh, of course, newly re-elected Premier Daniel Smith speaking with Shigannam the other morning about immediate priorities and made it clear that that's going to involve uh, trying to work with, and if not, pushing back against Ottawa and its plans on two key issues. Uh, that being the uh, emissions cap on the oil sands. And we're going to talk more about that a little bit later on, a new report out today uh, on the impact of those policies, but also specifically the clean electricity regulations that are coming soon. The federal government's plans to decarbonize the electricity grid to try to get it to net zero by 2035, which will mean phasing out natural gas from the electricity grid, something that Alberta relies quite heavily upon uh, to generate electricity. So this would have some real consequences uh, for Alberta. But it's not just Alberta that's concerned about this. Uh, There was um, a tweet from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Uh, Late on Monday evening, once the election results were clear, offering his congratulations to his Alberta counterpart and also making it clear that he looks forward to the continued cooperation and collaboration between the two provinces to address the challenges facing Western Canada uh, to try to build a prosperous future. So there's definitely an alliance here. And definitely shared concern here. Now, Scott Moe faces uh, some re-election battles of his own coming up next year. But uh, for now, there's uh, a pretty unified front here. Uh, both premiers uh, with a mandate, arguably, on these issues. So uh, how important is that, then, to, to have that kind of an alliance? Where can Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, work collaboratively? and show this uh, united front to Ottawa. Well, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon someone with some very special insights uh, on all of this. Brad Wall, of course, was the Premier of Saskatchewan from 2007 to 2018, now works as a special advisor for Osler, Hoskin & Harcourt, LLP. Mr. Wall, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Uh, so it's an interesting moment here with uh, Alberta's premier newly reelected uh, and Saskatchewan's premier prepared to stand shoulder to shoulder with his Alberta counterpart, just as we're about to get some some of these new policies enacted by the federal government. What, what do you make of this whole situation? Well, I think it's significant. I think it's significant that Premier Smith mentioned this specifically in her uh, in her victory speech. This issue, uh, the two issues, the cap that you've referenced, you've canvassed the two quite well off the top here, and the other one being the clean electricity regulation. Premier Moe in Saskatchewan has been leading on this issue and just a matter of weeks ago set out the Sask Power or the Made in Saskatchewan Clean Electricity or Net Zero Plan where he committed to a 2050 deadline and pointed out uh, as I think Premier Smith just did in that clip that this, uh, if implemented in 2035, is not that long uh, from not that far out and it's it's un- unworkable never mind being uh, exceedingly expensive for ratepayers, for power customers uh, in our two provinces and arguably elsewhere in the country, it may not be achievable. Think about Saskatchewan, which is similar to to Alberta in terms of its reliance on natural gas. In fact, in Saskatchewan, we also rely on coal generation, mm-hmm. not very you know less and less of it all the time, and, and a lot of the coal generation comes from a project uh, that we invested in when I was in my old job called Boundary Dam 3, which is a clean coal project that currently burns coal three times cleaner than natural gas. Uh, that that particular facility will have to be phased out 
by federal regulation anyway by 2030. So, you know, in if your base load in Saskatchewan and Alberta backs up the intermittency of renewables is natural gas, and natural gas is um, persona non grata, so to speak, by 2035 banned, what are the options? Well, you can import them from hydro provinces, BC and Manitoba. In Saskatchewan, the inquiry's already been made. Manitoba can't supply the needs. We don't have our own hydro in Saskatchewan. I'd expect to be the same in Alberta in terms of an option. Nuclear is an option, but we all know the runway in terms of getting to commission uh, goes well beyond 2035 to build enough nuclear capacity, even small modular capacity by this deadline. So the two premiers are quite right to point out the unworkability of this federal plan. And I think that's what you saw Premier Smith do uh, two weeks ago, Premier Morgan as well. Could be other provinces, by the way, that don't agree. Ontario is pretty close to being uh, uh, net negative already because of nuclear, but they're still building gas plants. There might be concerns from Atlantic provinces. So I think there might be more than just Alberta and Saskatchewan on this particular issue. Right, and I think you know both premiers have expressed a, a willingness to to try to find common ground with Ottawa to cooperate and collaborate where there's an opportunity to do so. But I guess that's got to be a, a two way street here. I mean, before we get to a fight, I, I would imagine there's going to be an attempt to try to find some common ground here. But how, how likely is that? Well, I think that's true. I think in the case of Saskatchewan, it's been very specific and probably will be from uh, Premier Smith's new government. I mean, they're just not even yet sworn in a new cabinet, so we need to give them some time. But I think both jurisdictions will say, look, we're, in fact, Saskatchewan has, here's our plan to get to net zero, but it's not going to be till 2050 because our, our citizens can't afford your plan if it's even workable at all. So I, I think that's going to be the, the case where Alberta and Saskatchewan and arguably other provinces who have a problem with this are prepared to work with the feds and you know constitutional lawyers may point out that they don't they're not really compelled to you know rob here's an exact quote about the, the constitution of our country section 92a1c gives the province uh, and the legislatures of the province the exclusive uh, jurisdiction to make laws in relation to and here's the quote the development conservation and management of sites and facilities of the province for the generation and production of electrical energy yeah it's pretty clear mm-hmm. uh that's the that's the constitution the carbon tax case that provinces saskatchewan and alberta fought against the feds was not one um you know based on the definition of price and tax and a number of other issues but there certainly wasn't the clarity prescribed in the constitution going into that issue as there is in the case of electrical energy uh development so you know on on the on the oil cap i i'm you know it, it's uh i think it's going to be something similar but i'm most familiar with this cer or clean electricity standard or regulations and i think i think the provinces have a reasonable position constitutionally but also morally when they say look we're we're prepared to try to get to net zero but if these regulations stand in their draft form we it, it's it's an impossibility and we're going to defend the interests of western canada yeah, and, and I think as you alluded to, this is almost certainly going to, to go before the courts and probably needs to go before the courts, doesn't it? Well, maybe this will back up the feds, though. So let's remember the regulations uh, have been in draft form uh, and can change. Yep. Surely the federal government's lawyers are looking at the same uh, clause, Section 92 clause I just read, 
and pointing out to the to the Trudeau government that look we we may not have the lake to stand on here that we think we do, uh, but consider the policy itself. Uh, you know, the even absent that, it, it is truly difficult for anyone to see how the federal plan is workable in certain provinces. It is for other provinces who have a lot of hydro. Uh, by the way, hydro continues to be excluded as a resource from the equalization formula. That's something that always bothered me because it was as big an asset to those jurisdictions, now even more so as oil and gas was to Saskatchewan and Alberta, where that has to count into the formula. But if you're a hydro province, this is not maybe as much of a concern. Uh, but the bottom line is Alberta and Saskatchewan are not. And so uh, it looks like a very tar- another very targeted measure from the federal government against against our two provinces and arguably, as I noted earlier, Atlantic Canadian jurisdictions and to some extent Ontario. So, um, so for those for those who are, I guess, downplaying the importance of having a government in Alberta and a government in Saskatchewan who are prepared to stand up to the feds, I would just point to the CER in particular and say. Thank goodness that we're going to have, we have governments that are prepared to do it. Otherwise, this plan would continue apace, and it truly is uh, poses a great risk and a great threat. Only twelve years out from now, to our two provinces. So, what's your level of optimism here that you know we we can change course in terms of what Ottawa intends to do, or have some success in you know bringing some some common sense, I guess, to to all of this. Well, that's the right way to put it. Uh, again, you, you have two jurisdictions who are prepared to work with the federal government, that's my belief, who are prepared to work on this issue of emissions reductions, who understand that they need, that we all need to do more, but who are, who are going to defend the interests of their, of their respective provinces based on that common sense. I'm optimistic just based on, you know, the clause in the Constitution I read to you, and maybe this is me being sort of Pollyannish or naive about the issue, but I think the feds, the feds might uh, back off on this. I think they'll they should see that they're not the, the legal standing doesn't seem to be there, and secondly, that it's just unworkable and unwise policy. At least, I mean, again, I'm, maybe I'm being naive. I was <laughs> I've been I've been uh, proven guilty of being overly naive of the federal government and its intentions with respect to our foundational industries out west before, but I I have to think that they're considering. Just the practicality of what they're suggesting or the impracticality of it and also um, the constitutionality or the unconstitutionality of it as well. We'll find out. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Former Premier Brad Wall, thank you so much for joining us uh, here today. Really do appreciate it. All the best. Take care. Uh, That is Brad Wall. He was the Premier of Saskatchewan from 2007 to 2018, a pretty uh, important and transformative political figure in that province. Uh, Scott Moe, of course, his successor. Scott Moe intends on running for re-election in 2024. You know, won quite easily in in 2020. It doesn't seem like, uh, you know, there's any reason to think it's going to be any different next year. But in the meantime, uh, yeah, there's definitely that united front between the two. And and on this issue in particular, and I think Brad Wall raises some really interesting points about, especially the, the legality, constitutionality of all of this. And this got mentioned by by a guest that we had on the other day that, you know, we're kind of in uncharted territory here in, in a lot of this. We, we've never had a federal government attempt to assert this kind of jurisdiction with something like this before. 
And surely they will point to the overarching goal and objective of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and some of the principles that have been established in the carbon tax case and elsewhere that, you know, the federal government has some jurisdiction when it comes to the environment. But when it comes to the Constitution and the electricity specifically, the provincial jurisdiction is pretty clear. And I need to say this as well, where we fell short, the responsibility rests entirely with me. Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. Plenty still to get to, including your phone calls. But that, of course, was Rachel Notley, her concession speech on election night, talking about the election results and acknowledging maybe that there were mistakes or missteps. And that at the end of the day, the responsibility lies with her. Now, for now, Rachel Notley intends to stay on as NDP leader, to stay on as opposition leader. What are the chances that she contests yet another election? What are the chances that these two leaders are opposed uh, to another once again in an election campaign? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Four years is a long time in Alberta politics, as we know. But was this a winnable election for the NDP? And if so, how did it get away from them? Where do they go from here? Well, Max Fawcett, his columnist for the National Observer, wrote an interesting piece about some of these questions uh, this week. You can find it at nationalobserver.com, as well as his latest talking about energy transition and the challenges for Alberta's newly re-elected UCB government. But he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Max, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on again, Rob. You know, it's interesting because I think there's some in, in the UCP or on the conservative side who believe that the NDP really can't win an election if the conservatives are unified. And I almost think some of the NDP side are taking some solace in a similar notion, maybe that this wasn't a winnable election and they should be happy with the result. But I mean, first of all, was it a winnable election? Absolutely. It was a winnable election. I mean, you know, the, the NDP folks who were saying that, I guess, when you lose an election, you got to tell yourself something to, to paper over the hurt. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't an empty net like I've heard some people suggest it was. But then there was room in the goal for the puck. Uh, and, and they, you know, to, to continue the metaphor, they, they missed the net. Um, they spent far too much time focused on Danielle Smith, focused on her negatives, uh, really in kind of a repeat of the 2019 campaign that they ran against Jason Kenney. And not nearly enough time explaining what their vision for the province was and explaining what their vision for the province's economy was. You know, they just didn't have an economic story to tell people. And, you know, maybe that works up in Edmonton, uh, that, that you don't have to have one. But I think as, as you and as most of your listeners know, you have to have one down here in Calgary uh, if you're going to win an election. And they just didn't have anything available. They, you know, they talked a lot about the way Daniel Smith was bad. And I think a lot of people were prepared to grant them that point. But without following it up with an explanation of why life would be better over the next four years under them. Uh, it just wasn't enough to, to connect the dots. And, and you know, they, they do have an economic story they can tell. It's, I've, I've written about it repeatedly in a bunch of different columns. But if they won't tell it, people aren't going to, aren't going to hear it. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the corporate tax increase they announced in the middle of the campaign – was a gift for the UCP. The UCP's own campaign manager said as much, and it allowed the UCP to tell the same old story, which is that the NDP doesn't get the economy, they're bad for your household budget, they're going to kill jobs, and you should trust us. And I think that was the ball game right there. As soon as, as, soon as that announcement came out about the corporate tax increase, uh, I remember talking to a few folks and just saying, like, that's it, it's over. Um, you know, I don't know why they did it, but now they have maybe four years uh, to figure out why and, and not do it again. 
that's part of the challenge because I think, you know, the NDP of, and, and you know, sure, I mean, that, that there is a need to, to maybe spend more in certain areas or, you know, to invest in certain areas. And it's reasonable that a left of center party would, would talk about that, but that you got to be able to pay for those promises. Was it realistic for them to talk about areas where we need to spend without putting forward any kind of a, a tax increase? Well, I think, I think that's sort of a, a trap and it's a trap that, that, NDP parties or NDP campaigns have fallen into federally in 2015, uh, in BC in 2013, here in 2019, and again in 2023. Uh, you know, they feel like they have to justify the the image that has been portrayed of them as reckless fiscal managers. I had a column where I went through all the NDP governments in Canadian history, and it shows that they're actually better stewards of the economy and of deficits and debt than conservatives and liberals. But they don't tell that story. They let the story be told about them, about being, you know, kind of hapless, uh, uh, you know, enemies of the of the private sector. And so they do this thing where they overcorrect and they say, no, 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 let us show you how we're going to balance the budget. You'll note that Danielle Smith didn't talk about the police reform she wants to do. She didn't talk mm-hmm. about, um, you know, the pension, the repatriating Alberta's pension assets. She put that off till after the election, which was very smart tactically, because those things are not popular. The NDP should have done the same thing here. They should have said, you know what, if we're elected, we'll sit down with the business community, we'll sit down with our stakeholders, we'll come up with a good plan to make sure things work, Uh, but we're more focused on talking about X, Y, and Z. Instead, they kind of fell into the trap of having to justify uh, something that the other party didn't need to, you know? Um, The sort of a double standard they impose on themselves, and it's cost them multiple elections now. Uh, there, there's there's a connection to, to what goes on in Ottawa that we can get into, but I do wonder if, you know, part of the trap of the NDP was on the, you know, the, the federal government's plan changes to, to the electricity grid, the incoming uh, clean electricity regulations, the uncertainty as to what that, that's all going to mean. And I, I think they tried to box Rachel Notley in as, as a supporter of all of that. I mean, your thoughts on that issue specifically, but also the bigger question of the Trudeau slash Singh baggage. It's huge. Uh, you know, I talked to a few of my liberal friends in Ottawa, and yes, I do have those apologies, but uh, <laughs> I asked them, like, are you guys sandbagging the NDP here on purpose with, you know, with this just transition stuff, with the clean electricity stuff? Because it sure seemed like the kind of thing that you would put into the into the water if you wanted the NDP to lose. Now, why would they want the NDP to lose when, you know, allegedly Justin Trudeau is one of Rachel Notley's bosses? I've never figured that part out, but um th- Daniel Smith is a very effective uh, campaign tool for Justin Trudeau uh, when, if and when he runs against Pierre Poilievre. You know, having having Premier Smith is much more useful for the federal Liberals than having Premier Notley. And given how uh, in tough they are right now, I mean, due mostly to their own poor decisions, but you know, the federal Liberals are are kind of treading water desperately here. Maybe they needed the the, the premiership of of Daniel Smith to hold on to and. So putting these policies in place or putting these conversations in the air really helped Danielle Smith and it really put Notley and the NDP on their heels because they couldn't oppose them as vociferously and vigorously as Danielle Smith was. No, I don't think anyone could really. Um, and it, it just kind of put them in a weak position. They, they, weren't, they weren't the defenders of Alberta the way that uh, Danielle Smith was, but you know they also weren't sort of the advocates for uh, good climate policy. They couldn't really find a way to walk that line. And, and so who knows, maybe maybe the federal liberals are secretly fairly happy with this outcome. Time will tell. But uh, I just wouldn't put those politics uh, past certain people, uh, because at the end of the day, 
the federal Liberal Party wants to get reelected too. I think it's often understated how much of a shadow that casts in Alberta politics. Like I, I wrote something last year, I think around the time when maybe Daniel started, Daniel Smith first started talking about the the Sovereignty Act, that if you know Justin Trudeau wasn't the prime minister, especially if Pierre Polyev was, like none of that, none of that would would have ever come up. I mean, the whole UCP leadership race might have been completely different, and in all likelihood, maybe you know this this whole election would have been completely different. Yeah, that's one of the the things that I noted in my my piece. Uh, sort of outlining why I don't think this is sort of the only chance the NDP has to win and why they could win in 2027 or whenever the election happens. Um, you know, if, if there's a different prime minister in Ottawa, one not named Trudeau, that changes everything in Alberta. And I, I think we forget that because we've had him in power for uh, almost a decade now since 2015. That's a lifetime. That's 10 lifetimes ago in politics. Yeah. And I'm not sure anyone is is fully prepared for what a difference that's going to make. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not rooting for a Polyev government. I don't think it would be particularly good for Canada or Alberta. But I think in terms of the impact it would have on our politics here, the, the change, the sort of clearing of the air, I think it would be transformative uh, because it wouldn't give the UCP and provincial conservatives this crutch that they can always go to. If anything's going wrong, they can just throw the Trudeau name out and people get upset and come back to the fold. They'd actually have to make a better case for their policies, for their governance, for their ideas. And you know, maybe we need that because it really, you know, the Trudeau name is really starting to feel like a cloud that is, you know, overshadowing almost everything in this province. Now, we can talk more about Notley or potential successors, but in terms of the party itself, I think Rachel Notley, you know, when she won in 2015, she she kind of became the brand more so than the, than the party itself, more than the NDP brand. Uh, you know, the NDP outside of Edmonton doesn't really have much uh, of a history or presence in Alberta politics. Is the brand part of the problem? If the left went through something similar that the conservative movement went through after 2015, we're not necessarily uniting the left, but a, a different vehicle, the, the liberal Democrats or the progressive Democrats or something unique to Alberta or separate from the NDP brand and the federal party. Is, is that realistic? Would that make much of a difference? What do you make of that? Oh, boy. I mean, that's a can of worms. I wrote a, I wrote a column about that a few years ago, basically proposing that, that they needed to rebrand, separate themselves from the federal NDP and, and sort of, uh, you know, come at it with this broader coalition. I, I think what we saw in this election is that the voter coalition is basically there. Uh, you know, the Alberta Party basically disappeared. The Alberta Liberal worse than a joke at this point. So all those voters are under the same roof. But I do think that the brand keeps some of the red Tories, it keeps some of the more sort of um, small-c conservatives from considering it as an option. And I think it would be an interesting exercise to consider the possibility of putting a new coat of paint uh, on the vehicle that Rachel Notley has helped create. I think the challenge there, number one, is Rachel Notley. Um, she is, by all accounts, a very loyal New Democrat. You know, her father was a New Democrat. She was raised in the party. I think she would find it very hard to formally cut ties. And I think there's a lot of New Democrats that are the same way. They they are wedded to the the the, the party and the family that they you know that they have, and I don't think that it would be as easy to do as it was for Jason Kenney. Um, I, I you know I think in in some respects there are a lot of New Democrats who would prefer to lose with their principles intact than win with a sort of diluted brand or or a different name on the ticket and. That's for them to decide, I suppose. Um, but I, but I do think it's an interesting conversation. It's sort of one that pops its head up every now and then. Um, you know, full credit to Rachel Notley for, I think, turning the NDP brand at least in Calgary here from 
you know, kind of a no-go for a lot of people to one that people are willing to consider. Uh, there's a lot of people who, you know, quote-unquote lent her, their votes to her candidates this time, and I think they may become more comfortable with that in the future, having seen that, you know, they didn't turn into a pumpkin, the sky didn't fall, uh, everything's okay. They may be willing to vote NDP a second time or a third time, and I do think that the NDP's growth in Calgary is, uh, you know, there's still some room for them to, to, to keep adding votes here. So does she stick around then? I mean, the Notley brand is is certainly tarnished here and losing two elections in a row can't be overlooked. Uh, is there anyone who potentially could, you know, be a, a successor and, and build the party from here? Or what about the leadership question? It's a, it's a very good question. I, I made some suggestions on a different show the other day that got me in a bit of trouble with some folks. But, <laughs> um, you know, I look. Nobody in the party right now is as popular as Rachel Notley. And it's the same dilemma, I think, that the federal liberals face, is that for all of Justin Trudeau's unpopularity, there's still nobody in their midst who is probably more likely to win an election than him. You really have to take a bit of a leap of faith and, uh, you know, choose someone that uh, doesn't have the profile but may grow into it. And you just don't know until you take that leap. Um, I think the decision is ultimately Ms. Notley's. Like, if she wants to run again, I think she will. I don't think the party would dream of throwing her out. You know, we saw in Ontario, Andrea Horvath lost elections in, in far more striking fashion, and she got, I believe, three kicks at the can. Um, so I don't, I don't think that she's going to get pushed out. But if she does decide to leave, and, and I think she would do that probably within 12 to 18 months after seeing if Danielle Smith can hold the confidence of her party and keep things together... Uh, you know, there's some really interesting names out there. Uh, you know, Shannon Phillips down in Lethbridge, Rocky Pancholi up in Edmonton. Um, you know, a lot of really strong women uh, who I think would be interesting alternatives uh, to Rachel Notley. I, I just don't think we know how she's going to land on it yet. You know, losing an election like this that you think you're going to win is tough. It takes some time to digest it. And, and I think we'll know more in the weeks and months ahead. But, it, you know, if there is a leadership race... Um, it's not guaranteed that the NDP will continue ascending. You know, they could pick the wrong leader like the Liberals did uh, after Paul Martin and, you know, be back to five to ten seats before they know it. So they need to they need to weigh that uh, pretty carefully, I think. Yeah, I, I know some people noticed or, or made notice of, you know, Ned Nenshi endorsing Rachel Notley getting under the campaign trail in the final days. Somebody who's not traditionally from, you know, the NDP or a cut of the NDP cloth, but, you know, well-known kind of progressive politician, maybe not him specifically, but are, are there people like that out there as potential successors or leaders of the, you know, progressive movement as it were in Alberta? I think there are. I think, you know, I don't, I don't think that Ned Nenshi would, do well within the NDP, just because I don't, number one, he's not part of their party, and, and they tend to be very kind of careful about that. They want people to have been lifelong members or, you know, run or volunteered in multiple elections. I've certainly seen this firsthand, and I just don't think that he would pass their purity tests uh, for what they want in a leader. But in a rebranded, bigger tent, Alberta progressive party, uh, maybe someone like him is perfect, uh, someone who's a bit more to the middle, a bit more Calgary-focused, Calgary-friendly. Um, you know, I think that would be uh, invigorating in a lot of respects um, for Alberta politics. I think the danger that progressives have to always have their eye on is they don't want to split their vote again. Um, you know, this is, this is why the Conservatives had a dynasty uh, for so many years. Part of it was just the nature of Alberta, but part of it was, you know, progressive vote not being coalesced around one party as cleanly as it is right now around the NDP. So there's upside in a rebranding exercise. There's upside in, in exploring new leaders and sort of 
trying to push the, the, the walls out a little bit on the party. But there's also risk um, because it could all come collapsing down on them. Indeed. Uh, as I mentioned, much more at uh, nationalobserver.com. Max, appreciate the insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Anytime, Rob. All the best. There you go. Max Fawcett, columnist for the National Observer. Uh, his latest up at nationalobserver.com. So, I mean, that's the perspective on the losing side of things. And for now, I think, you know, it's kind of good times, happy times on the UCP side. Whether it stays that way over four years, we'll see. I mean, you know, Jason Kenney won a huge majority in 2019. Things didn't stay happy for long over there. But for now, that's not where the conversation's at. Daniel Smith is the premier. There's no push to to uh, to change that, at least on the UCP side. But for the NDP, there's some soul searching and some figuring out to do here. Welcome back. Uh, this kind of flew under the radar late last week. I don't know if it had anything to do with the Alberta election. I think these kinds of decisions maybe transcend provincial policy, but I think this is going to be seen as good news from the Alberta government's perspective, and maybe the federal government can can point to this as as a big win of sorts. But it's a, it's a good news announcement. It's an encouraging sign, I think, for uh, the oil sands in Alberta, that even as we navigate, you know, the focus on decarbonization and the, the path to net zero, uh, that there's still room for investment in the oil sands. There's still confidence in the Alberta oil sands. ConocoPhillips, uh, the global energy company, uh, announced late last week uh, that they are investing $4.4 billion in these uh, Sermon projects near Fort McMurray, this oil sands project. Uh, so this is a 50% stake of the project that they didn't own. Uh, so there were some other rivals looking at that project. So it's good that there was some competition. People wanted to, companies wanted to invest in that. But ConocoPhillips, which, you know, operates in countries around the world, uh, they believe that their money, a significant part of the money they're going to be investing this year, uh, should be invested here in Alberta. So they see this as, you know, financially a smart move. But also, you know, they see this as, as part of their plans to accelerate their greenhouse gas reduction targets. So it's interesting to see a company like this, you know, put that as a priority and how that, you know, what's happening here in Canada and Alberta fits into that strategy. Our next guest had a great overview of this. You can read it at theglobeandmail.com. The headline, Alberta Oil Sands win $4.4 billion endorsement from Texas energy giant ConocoPhillips. Joining us on the line to talk more about this is Andrew Willis, business columnist for The Globe and Mail, as mentioned, theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Rob. I think this is a pretty big deal, so glad to talk about it. Yeah, it is, and, and I'm surprised it hasn't received more attention. And, and again, as noted, I mean, this did come out Friday, so this wasn't necessarily, they weren't waiting until after the Alberta election or anything to, to announce this, right? No, no, not at all. This this has been in motion for a couple of weeks, and, mm -hmm. and I think it's good news for Alberta. What happened is very bad news for Suncor, which obviously is a, is a big Calgary-based company. The reason yeah. that ConocoPhillips stepped up here is because Suncor was trying to buy half this big oil sands project. And uh, as the founder of the project, as the controlling shareholder, as the operator of the project, uh, ConocoPhillips had a chance to, um, to trump Suncor and, and buy the uh, asset instead. Uh, it was being sold by a big French energy company named Total. Uh, and ConocoPhillips decided to, to use that option. They stepped up. They bought the other 50% of it. So, and that surprised some people. Um, mm -hmm. And the, re the reason, Rob, is that a lot of the global energy companies uh, have been exiting the oil sands. So this is, this is a big sea change. Uh, ConocoPhillips is 
is saying loudly and clearly that, that the oil sands are going to be a big part of our future. And, and as you said in the opening to this item, uh, you know, that, that um, $4.4 billion, that is a significant percentage of the money they're going to decrap their capital spending this year. Their total capital spending out of, out of Houston is, is approximately $11 billion, uh, and that's in U.S. dollars. So, um, yeah. so this, this is, they are committing a big chunk of change to Alberta. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that $4.4 billion is less than half of the $11 billion, but that, that spending is being spread out over numerous jurisdictions. The U.S., obviously, as you point out, Australia, Malaysia, Norway, Qatar. So uh, what, what this investment in Alberta represents, I think, is the, the biggest single investment in, in any of those countries, it appears. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it's the biggest investment they're going to make. And it reverses a trend. So I, I mentioned Total Energy is, is, is exiting the oil sands. They're, they are. They have raised the issue of you know the relatively high emissions from the oil sands. That's part of their rationale um, for for leaving after being there for decades. Um, Shell and Shell quit the oil sands. They sold their properties to Canadian Natural Resources. Um, a U.S. company called Marathon exited. Uh, the Norwegians exited a couple of years ago. Uh, in the form of a company called Stat Oil, which was an original investor in the oil sands. So so now you're seeing the global energy companies coming back. And the other big energy company that's obviously there is Imperial Oil, which is which was part of Exxon. And, and they are, are as committed to the oil sands as they've ever been. Yeah, that's interesting. So as mentioned, you know, this is an existing project. This isn't a new project this company has announced, but that they are doubling down on this project. So where do they see the benefit from that? The, you know, as mentioned, there's the, the financial benefit, but, you know, when it comes to their strategy of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, they, they see all of this, you know, fitting in here. Yeah, so let's let's just quickly talk about the money because you don't do this unless you think you're going to make a lot of money. Right. The Surmount project, the, the, the new 50% stake, that's going to add approximately 600 million US a year of free cash flow to um, to ConocoPhillips. That is a significant amount of money. It shows how big these projects are, Rob. How much they generate. So that's great. But at the same time. Um, ConocoPhillips is out with a long-term plan to um, to do you know to get to net zero by 2050, but also a, you know a shorter-term plan to reduce greenhouse gases by 50 to 60 percent by 2030. And and they on Surmount on this oil sands project, they've laid out the, the, the criteria they're going to use to get there. So about a third of the reduction, Rob, is going to come from carbon captured storage. That's through the Pathways Alliance, which a lot of the Canadian oil sands companies are in. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to use existing uh, technology to help um, uh, reduce you know, methane gas leakage and, and other means. And then they're also saying, look, we're, we're going to be adopters of new technology that, again, help us to capture the carbon rather than release it into the atmosphere. So, so you're seeing a significant commitment to spending on new technology in the oil sands. And, and that, I think shows us the way forward as, as we work towards an energy transition. You know, we're still going to produce the oil. We're, we're just going to do it more efficiently and with less greenhouse gases. So that's, that's kind of Conical Phillips' story. It is. And it's interesting because, you know, like I said, I think the Alberta government you know, might see this as a vote of confidence in Alberta, but, you know, the federal government could see this as a vote of confidence in, in Canada or, you know, Canada's ambitious plans for decarbonization and, and net zero. I mean, ConocoPhillips is surely aware of everything happening in, in Canada and where things are going in, in the longer term. Why do you think they still see, uh, you know, smart investment in, in that kind of environment? Well, first of all, the, the resource, the, the reserves that exist around Fort McMurray are, are almost unparalleled. Outside of Saudi Arabia and, and politically unstable Venezuela, there's no region with more oil. So you kind of have to be there. And, and, and I think the, the, the acknowledgement here is that oil is still part of our future. And, and, I, and 
you know, there is a small group of environmentalists who are probably yelling at their radios right now saying, well, wait a minute, we should just leave the oil in the oil sands. So if you believe that, then what ConocoPhillips is doing doesn't make sense to you. But, but if you believe that there are ways to extract this oil while at the same time lowering your emissions, that's the path forward for ConocoPhillips. And that's, that's what you're seeing also from all uh, four or five of the largest Canadian companies. They're going to make the investments in, in technology that allow them to reduce the emissions. And, and all those companies, including ConocoPhillips, they're actually quite – they've come to peace with what the federal government is doing. They, they're working hard with the government to ensure that, that the way emissions are controlled, you know, caps on production and things like that, that they're industry-friendly, fr- just as you would expect. Um, but, but there is – I think a partnership would be too, too strong a word, Rob, but there is, there is an, a degree of cooperation not only with the Alberta government but also with the feds. Uh, and the oil patch on on how to um, how to make a greener energy transition, but at the same time still produce oil and gas. Well, and carbon capture is one area where I think there is that consensus, or at least certainly can be. Yeah. You know, ConocoPhillips and the other members of the Pathway Alliance they're prepared to to invest in carbon capture, but you know they're they're also looking to to government to to do its part as well, aren't they? They are, and and that frankly is slowing things down a bit. There there are some projects out there, a big carbon capture project where they'll create a hub, and and all the different producers will send the carbon through pipelines, and then they'll be stored underground. Projects like that are expensive. Um, they're not moving as quickly as I think the industry would want. But look, the price tags are, are huge, and the engineering is all pretty new. Like these are projects that are costing in today's dollars about sixteen billion bucks, and and we all know that any big engineering project like that tends to go over budget, but. But yeah, no, there there are a lot of really interesting initiatives in the oil sands right now, and in Alberta in general, uh, meant to ensure oil keeps getting produced. Um, but we we do lower our greenhouse gas emissions. So I think the industry, when the industry starts talking up that, as they're doing when ConocoPhillips made this announcement, I guess pretty good sign for the country. Let's hope so. Uh, much more is mentioned. TheGlobeAndMail.com. Andrew, thanks so much for making some time for us. We appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. Enjoy your All the best. Cheers. Andrew Willis, business columnist for the report on business at the Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. So great overview uh, from him on this uh, announcement from ConocoPhillips. So yes, this is an investment in an existing project, but there was competition for that, that 50% stake in the Sermon project. Uh, Suncor Energy went hard for this. So yeah, that, that's a setback for them. But again, here's ConocoPhillips. This is a global company. So they're planning to spend $11.3 billion this year. And they're not necessarily tied to any one region, certainly not to, to, to Canada or to Alberta. I mean, right, they're a U.S.-based company. So they got some projects in, in the U.S. Midwest, uh, up in Alaska. They've got investments in Australia, Malaysia, Norway, Qatar, as mentioned. But their biggest single investment is this one, this $4.4 billion investment to buy that other 50% stake in the Sermont project. So they say this is going to boost their, their cash flow. This is going to generate revenue. That This is also going to help them in their goals, their previously uh, announced goals of reducing greenhouse gas intensity by 50 to 60% by 2030. And it was Andrew pointed out, we've seen uh, other companies, uh, Total, uh, Shell, Statoil, Marathon, uh, exit the oil sands. ConocoPhillips is doubling down. Welcome back. Rob Reagan-Rich with you here on this Thursday afternoon. And we were talking earlier about uh, the federal government's proposed clean electricity regulations. 
You know, their plans to decarbonize the grid by 2035. And that's one of the uh, federal policies that Alberta's re-elected premier has taken aim at. The other is the one we already knew about, the uh, federal government's plan to impose an emissions cap on the oil sands. Now, there's the whole question of, of why we've suddenly shifted from a price on carbon that's not specific to any industry uh, to now targeting and singling out uh, an industry. So it, it seems like we've, right, it seems, actually it seems like the government's undermining its own approach here, but it definitely represents a big shift. But the other question is, you know, is it going to work? Is it going to accomplish anything? You know, any policy needs to be uh, judged on its own merits or lack thereof. What are the costs? What are the benefits? Well, a new report out today from uh, the Fraser Institute uh, looking at the cap on the oil and gas industry finds that it is all pain with no gain, a tremendous cost and little to no benefit. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it is the uh, author of this report. Dr. Kenneth Green is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Kenneth, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you. All right, so what do we need to know about this uh, emissions cap? What are emissions being capped at? What is the industry basically at now? And, and when is all of this happening? Well, basically, the government's plan is part of its net zero, overall net zero 2050 crusade, which is to get greenhouse gas emissions in Canada to a net zero stance. That is, we put up as much as we take down in other ways through agriculture, in and out of the atmosphere, by 2050. And there are targets to be achieved by 2030. Um, though in, in the paper that, I, that you're, we're talking about, uh, we looked at the 2030 target, which is a 31% cut uh, in emissions from the oil and gas sector. But because that's only a small part of a small part of Canada's overall emissions, which are a small part of the world's right. emissions, uh, it's a trivial amount of emission reductions in terms of having an effect on the atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases and therefore climate change. So there'll be virtually no impact, no measurable impact. And yet a study um, we, we cite in the reference in the piece is that it'll cost about $45 billion from uh, the Canadian economy in 2030 uh, for no, for no uh, good benefit, no benefit at all, really. Right. I want to unpack those numbers. What, what do you make, though, of the point that's been raised that we've shifted or seem to be shifting here from the relative simplicity of a, a price on carbon that's not specific to any kind of emission or any specific industry to now this sort of heavy handed regulatory approach of imposing a cap on a specific industry? Well, I guess what I would say is, is I, I could only wish we ever had a simplistic, simple focus on a price on carbon uh, and the exclusion of a huge number of regulatory initiatives, uh, but we never did. And the government was never in, never intended to allow for such a thing to happen. Regulatory controls of greenhouse gases have existed for decades. All the, the regulations, the energy regulations on your appliances, your vehicles, your houses, your, your insulation, um, all of those things are basically greenhouse gas emission controls just buried in energy controls. Um, and so we've had a, a ton of these kind of regulations going on for decades. Uh, and then they put the carbon price in place, but they never intended to actually let it work. That is, let it operate freely where the people's people's desires for energy or for activities that emit carbon are are, are manifest as a certain price, and they, they pay it, and that's what leads to emission reductions. Um, the government never really believed that emission pricing would do that. It's simply a revenue raiser for the government. So the regulations are actually the meat. And uh, of the of the the main part of the meal, as it were, 
Uh, and to them, the, the greenhouse gas emission, the, the uh, carbon tax is just a revenue source. All right, so let's get back to the, the question about the impact that this is going to have. You estimate uh, a cost of uh, almost $45 billion as a result of this emissions cap. So where, where do we see the hit? Where do those costs uh, emerge? Well, the hit's going to happen, of course, to the oil and gas industry first and foremost in the, in the provinces that produce oil and gas. So it's going to be Alberta and Saskatchewan, the, the, the Prairie provinces, um, somewhat um, the eastern Atlantic provinces have, that have some oil uh, oil interests as well. Um, but then, and of course, that's going to radiate out from there as it will to all of the industries dependent on the product. Uh, we, but we focus in this paper on the downstream uh, plastics and chemistry uh, industry in Canada, which takes uh, its feedstock from Canada's oil and gas uh, production. But but essentially, even though peop- the the, the um, many people hate to, to acknowledge it, these these impacts flow cost out, out into the general economy from companies. They don't they don't land in the companies and the CEO um, compensation. When the government imposes costs on an industry, those costs are passed along to spread they spread in waves to out from where they are imposed to the rest of the public in Canada. We've seen the defense put forth by the government before. You know, the Parliamentary Budget Office has done a couple of important reports on the cost of liberal environmental policy. And what they've argued, and I'm sure they were probably pointed out here, is that we're not factoring in the cost of climate change. But as, as you noted earlier, in terms of the pretty marginal emissions reduction this is going to achieve, we're not really mitigating any of the, the costs of climate change, are we? No, that's that's correct. I mean... Um, if, if there was a significant impact on the, on the climate that was going to flow from this bill, then they would be uh, somewhat correct in saying, well, you need, to, you need to look at the costs in comparison with the quantified improvements we're going to get, the benefits we're going to get in, in terms of a, a, a cooler climate or less, less warmed climate. But because the amounts are so minuscule of greenhouse gas emissions, um, you can't make that comparison because there will be no measurable benefit. There'll be no measurable change in, in global average temperature, and there'll be no measurable change in the derivative weather patterns and things uh, that are predicted to come from changes in that in that average temperature. So, uh, you, you can't do that kind of the comparison that, that the uh, governments might like you to do, because the, the scale of, of what's being done here is too small. Certainly, the government has some aggressive timelines here. And I know, you know, in Alberta, there are those in the industry. There's the Pathways Alliance that represents some pretty big players. You know, they're of the belief that net zero is achievable, not by 2030, mind you, but, you know, that's going to require a, a heavy reliance on, on carbon capture and other technologies. So, you know, some of these reductions are possible, but is, is part of the problem here then the, the aggressive timeline? Well, I mean, people do seem to, to forget that it's 2023 and 2030 is therefore only seven years away. Right. Uh, and this, this government is, is lucky to actually get a one-lane one road uh, paved for three blocks over a seven-year timeline. Yeah. So um, getting the changing over the economy toward net zero in that timeline strikes me as being rather fanciful. Um, as for industry groups and, and things saying, people saying that it's possible with carbon capture storage. Well, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of fig leaf um, application going on uh, in, in the world, in industry, and there has been for a very long time sort of pandering to the idea that, yes, we can do this with carbon capture and storage and with new technologies and improved efficiencies uh, that don't exist. It's like with electric vehicles and magic batteries. 
um, and wind and solar power and magic storage. They're they're happy to to pander to those ideas, but they're just um, they're really just not real and not realistic. And so I think it's in the talk is cheap category with regards to people saying we can do this because the timelines. If you look at historically what's been done, these timelines are historically completely out of the norm. Right, they're they're completely unattainable. So you don't see any way that this emissions cap isn't then a, a de facto production cap? No, not really. I mean, the, if, if one of the things we looked at is, is the, the rate of, improve, of increasing efficiency of producing uh, oil and gas without produce, and producing less greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, what's called the carbon the greenhouse gas intensity of, of, of production of oil and gas. Uh, and that that decreased a bit in the early days of concern over greenhouse gas emissions, but it has slowed down. And that's because they're they're re- reaching diminishing returns on on improving efficiencies, which is what happens um, in the real world with regard to efficiencies of things. And so the the up the chances for technological breakthroughs, cutting things back and saving money, uh, are relatively slim. Instead, it's going to be curta- curtailment of production cuts. Uh, that uh, leads to the reduction in emission output um, if it's going to happen, if it's not going to be somehow weighed the way by the government, uh, fancy, some government fancy accounting, then yes, I mean, it's going to have to be reduced output in order to reduce production in order to meet the targets for reduced emissions. Very interesting. Much more is mentioned, FraserInstitute.org. Kenneth Green, always appreciate your time and your insight on this stuff. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Always a pleasure. Likewise, all the best. Take care. Kenneth Green, a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org, uh, making the case that the emissions cap in the oil and gas industry all pain with no gain. Perhaps as much as $45 billion in, in costs by 2030, and as he sees it, very little uh, upside. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.